Welcome to Bandit's Keep. I'm Daniel. I apologize that my voice gets a little bit gravelly later in the episode. Uh, the air quality here is not great with the wildfires up in Canada. If anybody's up there or anybody suffering from the terrible air, uh, my heart goes out to you. It's pretty bad. I'm, you know, pretty lucky here. I've got, uh, you know, filtration in my house and uh, just trying to stay inside. In any case, this week we're going to talk about a bunch of different things, but I always forget to mention I have another podcast. If you do not know, I have another podcast. It is called Monsters and Treasure. There is a link in the show notes. I do that with the amazing K.R. King from D&D Homebrew. If you don't know who about K.R., check out their YouTube channel, D&D Homebrew, as it would be. And we have a lot of fun just talking about all kinds of different subjects. So if you want to check that out, I'd appreciate it. And let's get to the show. So today I want to talk about a couple of different things. The first one is going to be, well, actually, I'm going to talk about it second, I think, but one of them is going to be one-to-one time and timekeeping in AD&D and OD&D. This seems to be a topic that comes to play every once in a while on Twitter, especially I see it. And it, it's one of those weird things to me because I think that people don't actually read what is written and they just take what somebody's saying or maybe just the idea of you saying, well, you keep one-to-one time. All right, I am just talking about it. And they just think that's the way it is. Like the other day, somebody was like, I don't understand. I want to use one-to-one time. I think it's important. But what do I do if somebody's in a dungeon and then we have to end the session? And then we can't play again for a week. They just stand in that room for a week. No, it clearly says in both OD&D and AD&D, you only track that time when they're not in the dungeon. So what I'm going to read the OD&D version because it's not 17 pages of Gygaxian uh, words, but I read through AD&D again this morning. He gives a lot of examples, but it's basically exactly the same. He just makes it, he changes a little bit. I'll talk about the changes. Okay. I'm just going to read this to you, the whole thing, because like I said, it's only like a paragraph, two paragraphs. Uh, As the campaign goes into full swing, it's probable there will be various groups going every which way and in all different time periods. It is suggested that a record of each player be kept, the referee checking off each week as it is spent. Recon the passage of time thus. Dungeon expedition equals one week. Now I'm going to stop reading for a second and say this is different than AD&D. In AD&D, he actually tracks day to day. So if they go to the dungeon for two days, only two days go by. OD&D, it's just a week. That that takes into account your like, preparation, getting your rations, getting all your stuff together, planning, that kind of stuff is all considered, and also rest when you get back. So you go out to the dungeon for a day, basically a week gets checked off of time. That's how OD&D works. Next, wilderness adventure. One move equals one day. One week of actual time equals one week of game time. This is what confuses people. So let me read the three small paragraphs after that. The time for dungeon adventures considers only uh, preparations and typically one day descent into the pits. So again, that's what I was just talking about. If you go more than one actual day in the dungeon, then basically you would add additional days. So it's one week period. And then if you dive in a dungeon three days, then it's one week and two days. That's how that would work. Also keep in mind, and I want to talk about this a little bit as well. Maybe I'll talk about it next episode. I was looking at where it says in OD&D, you get one, you know, X number of spells per day that memorize and forget. And the way it's written in OD&D is very interesting, but we'll come back to that in another episode, that is. Okay, the time for wilderness expedition would include days of rest and recuperation. So again, if you're doing one move equals one day through the wilderness, that's counting on you resting and stuff. You don't have to do all that extra stuff. Again, remember, you have to rest. 
if you go back to wilderness travel, every you travel for six days, you rest for one day. So that's part of the wilderness expedition. Now, this is the one. Actual time would not be counted off for players out on a wilderness adventure, but it would be for those nude in their dens, hidey holes, keeps, castles, etc. And I think this is the confusing part, as well as those in the throes of some expedition in the underworld. Now, you could take that as, well, they're in the dungeon, so that's the underworld. But I think when we look at throes of some expedition in the underworld, we're talking about people that are going for weeks at a time into the underworld and like truly explore. And remember that ODD's got a lot of influences in pulp, and that kind of stuff happens. Think journey to the center of the earth, right? So that would be counted off. If you're traveling to the center of the earth and then you stop playing for the day, you establish, you set up some kind of camp, and that's it, right? You don't worry about that. And I think the reason why he doesn't do that for the wilderness is because you're going to get so far ahead. And again, in the examples in Adine, do you see this, where one of the players goes on like a 12-day expedition in, you know, I think it's 13, in one, basically one session, you can imagine, right? So they've shot way ahead of the rest of the group. If you also tacked on another week, that would kind of not work out. Now, the other thing that here is that he's talking about you can create your own calendars and this and that. He talks about that in AD&D as well. Well, in AD&D, he talks about it. I like to use the, so this is how I'm doing it. So one reason why I'm talking about this is because I think that when you hear a lot of people talking about this, they say they're doing it, but they don't seem to really, I'm not calling anybody out saying they're not actually doing it, but just their examples don't seem to line up in my opinion. If you are doing this, let me know. You can see me do it in my actual play YouTube channel. I have a calendar book. I'm keeping time based on our own uh, calendar here in the on Earth, as it would be. And the way I do it is exactly as stated. When they're traveling through the wilderness, they basically go one day at a time as I make each move. I'm checking it off as they go. If they are in town, like they go back to town, basically their time passes normally. So if I have a group that's sitting in town, and if I did have this, they sat in town for like six weeks because I was just busy and they were safe in town, well, six weeks went by, and that's fine. They were spending money. They were resting. That's what you would do, right? I mean, if you're doing these massive expeditions, you're not necessarily... In fact, it's not in the game, but I kind of house rule a little bit that I'd usually have people spend a month after an expedition back at home kind of relaxing. Again, I'm a little flexible on it, but that's basically how I'm doing it. And the way I do it is each group has their... Like on their little envelope envelope folder I have for them, I have noted where they are in the world and as far as time-wise. And on my main calendar... I have them listed there as well. So you do run into these situations. Like Gygax talks about in AD&D where if group A goes, he sits down in one session, he doesn't, it's not group A, I think it's E, whatever. They go off for 12 days, they come back, they're ahead in time. So the other group, and again, this goes back to how it seems like his group played. The other groups could take advantage of this and be like, oh, we should get in and play a bunch of games because we can get more expeditions done before that group's actually back. We can take advantage of the fact that we can fill this time. In my experience playing, what usually happens is the rest of the players, because again, we don't play that way. We're kind of less competitive and we don't have a lot of you know stuff going on. They operate as a group. Most people would just be like, okay, well, we're just going to chill out in town and rest and do some research or whatever for a week so that we can be back on the same schedule. And one of the reasons why I thought to talk about this is because that's kind of what I say as I'm chipping through. I know I said I was going to get it done quickly, but this was a weird week. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, in my basically what, I, what I've gotten written so far in, in my game is as follows. Timekeeping and details of the world. In campaign play, 
a world calendar should be established and maintained. This is especially important when heroes adventure separately. One player's hero may spend a week in game time traveling to an outpost, while another player may have their hero explore a tomb just two days travel away. When these heroes decide to adventure together, their locations at any particular time must be known. Through use of a serialized format, much of the small detail can happen off-camera. With the campaign zooming in, which I talk about zooming in and zooming out in a different section, uh, for important negotiations, battles, and adventure. If two players wish their heroes, who are separated by hundreds of miles, to adventure together, it's a simple matter to jump forward months in time and narrate what brought the heroes to the current location. Again, this is a different way of playing, and I'm not saying it's the right or wrong way. There's all different ways to do this, and if you're playing with competitive groups, you're playing where time matters like that, where one group wants to get in the dungeon and take the stuff before the other group can get it, then really tracking the time and being like, well, no, 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 you can't you know, adventure today because your character is still in the future, run your other character, is a totally valid and probably a really cool way to play the game. In my experience, that hasn't been the case. Maybe because my groups are smaller, or even when I have a big group of eight players, they all want to play together. Nobody says to me, oh no, we want us, you know, the two of us to go explore three more sessions, you know, or through or this whole session while everybody else is in the future. That would just be confusing and a pain in the butt. <laughs> so I don't know who's running it the way exactly the guy Dex uh, spells it out here. It feels like that's more of a, you've got a lot of people playing open table West Marches style, which is super cool, but that's not how I do it. What I will say is that if you are thinking about doing one-to-one time, just freeze time for people when it needs to be frozen. If they're in a safe zone, real time passes. If they're not, then it doesn't. So if they're in the wilderness, real time doesn't pass. If they're in a dungeon, real time doesn't pass. If they're back at town, it does. If they've reestablished, in fact, you could consider that my party now that I'm playing with in person is in the throes of the underworld because they've gone through, they went through a basically a magical portal and they're in the dimension. But I don't track time like that because, again, there's a group of five of us or six, seven of us now, and we all play together. Like nobody's running off doing their own thing. So for me, I track time, but I track in-world time. Time is important. There's lots of different ways to track it. I don't think there's any one main or only way to do it. So if you're looking at doing one-to-one time and you're confused by it, I would go back to od and <laughs> I think it's explained much better here in this small section than all the examples that Gygax gives. Even though I love Gygax in writing and I love his examples and following it, I can see some people being slightly confused by it. Okay, the other thing I want to talk about very briefly is actually it's the temptation to make certain changes <laughs> in the rules. And this is something that is interesting, right? And I think this is actually how games develop and change for the better or worse, however you want to look at it. But it does change the nature of them when you just kind of change something because it doesn't seem fun in the moment, let's say. And you you have to think, how does this affect the overall game? So what I'm talking about here specifically is in my Dungeon 23, I'm about to go to level seven because July is starting, right? But I am in level six. And oftentimes when I roll a treasure, unguarded treasure, I'm getting stuff like 14,000, 15,000, 10,000 silver pieces. Now, looking at OD&D and knowing that a person can only carry, I believe it's 3,000 coins weight, if a party finds 15,000 silver pieces, it would take five of them fully loaded to carry that out. And 15,000 silver pieces is 1,500 experience points 
for a party at six level, which is basically nothing. It doesn't make any sense for the party to lug that out. And my thought was, well, maybe I'll turn that into gems or something to make it more you know, easier. No, 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 Daniel, don't do that. That's not, no, it's, it's like that for a reason. Two reasons, really. One, or the main one, is that it's going to add a temptation, right? Because players are greedy. If they think they can get it out, they're going to do that. Two, it's going to create an idea where you've got to bring a troop back in, right? You find this 15,000 silver pieces. Let's think about the Hobbit for a second. They defeat the trolls. Well, the Dungeon Master sends the NPC to defeat the trolls. Well, maybe Gandalf was a high-level player character. I don't know. But anyways, they defeat the trolls. They, uh, I don't know, did Gandalf really defeat the trolls or was it Frodo? Uh, I almost said Frodo Bilbo. Bilbo. Let me know who really beat those trolls. In any case, <laughs> they find that troll treasure and they take from it some small items they can carry, swords basically, right? And they bury the rest. So the idea of like finding large amounts of treasure that you can't take with you kind of works in that fantasy setting. So you find this 15,000 silver pieces, and of course you want it because yeah, it's only 1,500 experience points, which isn't that much, but that might be enough to push you over to the next level at some point. And also it might be enough to like pay off your henchmen or, or hire an army for several months or build a section to your castle or research a spell, right? So this is useful. This, this money is always going to be useful. So you want to get it out, but it's not going to be easy. So that means you've got to think about it. Okay, we can we hide this here? Can we put it into the corner and cast invisibility on it, right? Do we think about doing that, right? Do we, as players, go, instead of saying, well, my invisibility spell is so my, my magic user can sneak around and backstab somebody or get past the monster, or can you use that invisibility spell to, you know, make a pile of silver pieces, put it inside a sack, and turn that invisible, right? Then go out, hire some people for a you know, gold piece a day or whatever it is, right? And bring them into the dungeon, protect them, obviously, maybe even bring mules in or whatever, bring that treasure down, I mean, those people down, and haul that treasure back out. This can be a fun part of the game if you let it be. And if you just hand wave it and go, let's just make a gem so it's easier to carry, maybe that takes away from it a little bit. And I'm somebody who has definitely done that. I personally, and actually the, the system does allow for the deeper you go for you to be more likely to find things like gems and stuff. So you still get that. But why not leave those piles there? I feel like at one point I read an example of play, maybe it's an AD&D, where the player characters find some treasure and they dump out the silver or copper or whatever they have in their sacks so they can take the more valuable treasure. So, you know, they're like traveling along and they see the, the, the silver and they're like, well, let's pick it up. You know, we might not find anything else. And then later they're like, oh, no, gold. And they dump the silver out and take the gold. I think that's really cool. And again, it adds this idea that the players need to make choices of what they want to take with them, what they want to carry, how they want to handle it, creative solutions to get these things out of there. Now, I want to say this might have come from Taylor over at Cleric's Wear Ringmail. Taylor, let me know if this is from you. That there was, or maybe it's from a blog somewhere. I know I read it a while back where somebody was, make, in order to make treasure more interesting, they were talking about the idea of, instead of just translating all the gems or whatever, what you do is you look at what the treasure's value is like the coinage it's in, and you make the size of the treasure relevant. So in other words, if you find, instead of a thousand gold pieces, you could have a, you know, a, let's say a two foot tall uh, gold statue, which is going to be heavy, right? It might weigh a thousand coins, right? But it's a statue and it's not a thousand gold pieces. Or instead of 15,000 silver pieces, you have a 
giant silver statue or whatever statue with gems in it or whatever. There's something, some kind of statue that's valuable. Maybe it's some kind of stone. It might not be made out of silver or whatever. And it weighs 15,000 coins, but it's only worth 1,500 gold pieces, right? So it's the same thing. It's like you still have to carry out something incredibly heavy, but it makes it a little more interesting instead of it being just a bunch of coins. And obviously you can't just take part of it. <laughs> so that, you know, a tapestry, right? You could have a huge tapestry that weighs, I love tapestries, but you could have a huge tapestry that weighs 20,000 coin, but is only worth 2,000 gold pieces, right? That's your silver pieces right there. And I like that. So I'm pretty sure I read that somewhere and I thought it was Taylor, but it might not be. Uh, you let me know if somebody knows where that came from. I'm quite sure it wasn't, didn't come from me. <laughs> I'm sure I read it somewhere. So yeah, I, I didn't, I guess what I'm saying here is that my temptation as I'm writing this mega dungeon was to change stuff. And then I thought to myself, no, no, don't, because I'm trying to run it as close to the book as possible, which is interesting because once you get to the, there's only wandering monsters like to stock the rooms to six level of the dungeon. So this is interesting. I think I'm just going to have to have more monsters as they get deeper because now we're going to level seven, right? So when you get to level seven, when you roll that monster, that's a six level monster. Now there should be more of them. So that's what's going to happen there. It's interesting. Uh, we'll have to see how that works out. I may have to adjust my tables maybe as I go deeper. So this is a good lesson for me to learn. But I think the first lesson is look at something that's in the game and don't immediately consider it. Oh, that doesn't make sense anymore. Our higher level characters don't care about silver. They weren't thinking. No, they probably were thinking. And they were thinking it's going to be difficult to get those silver pieces out. Let's see how clever players can be or if they'll just leave them there. Anyways, I would love to know what you think about that. There are all different ways to contact me. They will be in the show notes. And on that note, we've got some calls from Rob over at Down in a Heap. Hey, Daniel, it's Rob C. Just calling in about your latest episode about power building and OD&D and regarding equipment especially. I guess I think you can do both. I use pretty much the prices from AD&D for armor. So plate mail is 400 gold pieces, but chain is 75. So... Starting characters like a fighter or a cleric can generally start out with chain, and if they don't, they're usually scrounging in-game for armor from their fallen foes and stuff, and uh, old armor becomes armor for retainers, and you're kind of a, aspiring to that plate mail. But it's only 400 gold pieces, so generally a PC will have enough money by second level to buy a pseudoplate mail and thereby a second level fighter a lot of times is better because of that in addition to going up in level. I completely take your point as far as starting characters being the ones that really need uh, the better armor to survive because they don't have as many hit points and whatnot but um, you also have the, the situation where if plate mail is really cheap in game then it seems like it should be more readily available to all the monsters and NPCs that can wear it as well. Um, so, I don't know, I guess, I feel like, as I said, you can do both. You can, you can have situations in-game that make optimizing your armor not always the best circumstances, as you point out, like swimming and, and things like that. And you can have it be something that's not uh, a given at first close to a given for a first level character that can wear, wear any armor but that's just the way i run it the way you run it's cool too thanks rob yes excellent point of course you could do both 
Uh, you know, and that actually makes sense. I had considered, I don't know if I said this in the podcast, I had considered making the OD&D equipment price list kind of like a, this is what you start with a price list, if that makes sense. So that would allow for your first level character to get that plate mail because maybe it's a family heirloom or, you know, they've been working their whole life for it. So it becomes almost like the, you could almost think of that starting gold as like, points to start with to gear points for lack of a better word and then maybe start using the more expensive prices from like ad and d in the future or just make it more rare because you make a really good point right if plate mail is only 50 gold pieces which is doesn't seem like much to adventurers right i suppose in the scope of things it's probably a lot to a peasant but right like why aren't why isn't every man at arms wearing a suit of plate mail why are they wearing chain instead so that actually is a good point and something i will consider You know, I think, yeah, in fact, I know Lamentations of the Plain Princess does something like this. They've got on their price list, they have two columns. One is like an in-town column and usual or in cities, I should say. And in cities, generally things are cheaper because they're more readily, some things are cheaper anyways, because they're more readily available. And when you make your first character, you get to use that cheaper column. The more expensive column, which is like the out in the wilderness column, is used basically in-game unless you're in the city. So it's, again, not a new idea for me, but maybe I'll do something like that because I do like the idea that the armor is something you want to achieve and that if even if you could start with it at first level, that makes that rust monster really suck, right? <laughs> if you're a first level character and you go into the dungeon and you get hit by a rust monster and then you've got to pay 400 gold pieces for your next suit of plate mail, you might not be able to afford it. So I think that's kind of... a an interesting thought. So yes, I like that a lot. We do have one more call from Rep. I guess my common theme here today is that you can do both. Likewise with referee sections and design notes, I want it all. <laughs> I haven't read that many games. Probably not as many as you, probably not as many as Joe. But I haven't read a game that didn't have a referee section, a role-playing game. So That's kind of a given, I think. It's the design notes that are the cherry on top for me. Uh, And it doesn't have to be... I mean, in a PDF, it doesn't take any more space. It's not like it's it's inhibiting production by increasing costs. But you could also have it like what you're essentially doing. Your design notes are basically on your podcast, but it could be on a blog. I think it's really interesting as a as a someone who likes to tinker with things to see people's notes. Uh, that's a really good point. I guess from my point of view, well, two points there. Let me cover the first one first, which is, or maybe it was the second one, the design notes as a blog or as a podcast or as a YouTube or whatever. That's a really interesting thing. And I think when we look at indie games, you know, maybe from smaller companies, maybe from bigger ones, I don't know. I guess even if you look at 5e, right, their Unearthed Arcana is effectively their design notes, right? It's basically the stuff they're working on, the articles they're working on to build the game up. So you do kind of get that a little bit. And I was going to say in a lot of indie games that I've followed and backed on Kickstarter, they have notes building up to it. From my point of view, I just think, I think I, think I said this, but who knows what I say, is that there's a lot of games that just kind of cut and paste the referee section out of things like Swords and Wizardry or Labyrinth Lord or whatever that are basically, you know, that allow for that, right? So effectively what you get is this game that's a little bit of design notes. Like I wanted a game that it was swords and sorcery and low magic. And they make like one class that's a little different and they use the same equipment list, the same referee notes, the same magic 
like everything's exactly the same from Swords and Wizardry with a tiny twist. I guess I just fell victim to buying about a dozen of those games early on, and that's kind of where <laughs> where my point of view comes from on that. But yeah, I, I don't disagree. I think it is nice to hear uh, what the person wants, but I think if you had to choose one or the other and you couldn't have it all, <laughs> I think having referee notes that clearly explained how the rules should be used you know, in the referee's mind, in the creator's mind, I should say, to create the effect that is, you know, is desired, right? When you create the game, because obviously we can take a game and run it however we want, right? But that might not be the idea, right? The idea might be completely different than how a player plays it. And you're not going to be able to control that. But hopefully if you have a good referee section, you can really explain it. So for instance, and of course, by no means am I saying that my referee section <laughs> is good because it's not done yet. In my referee section from for the Unchained game, I am talking about the idea that the characters are powerful, right? If you look at my game and you go, wow, these heroes are really powerful, and then you just put really tough people against them constantly, you're not going to get the feel that, that I am trying to put forth in the game. If I just tell you I was inspired by Conan, that doesn't mean anything, right? What does that even mean? But if I put in the game, this is how you set up an encounter, most people should be at this level, so a true hero should be able to take out four or five guys without even blinking an eye, right? You don't put your powerful four-armed apes in every room, right? That's a massive challenge that happens occasionally. You know, sorcerers might have powerful magics, but they should go down in one hit. You know, stuff like that. Because short of, like, creating every monster for somebody, I think that that kind of advice is basically what's going to allow people to have a feel that... I want to create in my game. I think that's the only way you can really do it is by encouraging the referee to referee in a specific way. Now, of course, to play devil advocate <laughs> against myself, if we look at, let's say, Swords and Wizardry, I'll go back to Swords and Wizardry, the design notes add that they put into that, uh, that Matt Fetch puts into it, as, the game, as you're reading through the game are really interesting, right? He gives like multiple versions, let's say, of initiative and says, well, there's no specific way in OD&D, but it says to use that, you know, whatever it says, so you don't refer to chain mail or whatever it says. And this is how different people have done it. This is how Holmes ended up interpreting it. This is how other people did it. And you see that like, okay, so these are options, right? That's design notes. He didn't just put, this is how you do initiative. He said, I put these three initiative systems in. And the reason why is because this was unclear or this, that, that. And I think those kind of design notes are super interesting and useful. So I don't remember if I came off anti-design note. <laughs> I just, I think that like, I think the idea was that if you have to choose versus a referee section that kind of guides you into how the game, and I'm air quoting here, should be played to get the flavor that the game was designed for versus a flat, boring referee section that's literally just cut and pasted from every other game that you've always seen. And then the beginning of the book says, I read a lot of Lovecraft, so run it like that. I don't think that's... <laughs> that's going to be the best thing. And again, I'm exaggerating and, and being a little silly, but that's what we're talking about, I guess, when I say design notes. Anyways, now I'm rambling in random directions, so I will <laughs> I will end the show and say, uh, if you would like to call in, uh, there are many ways to do it. You can use the Spotify link that is in the show notes. You could uh, follow a link to my Discord server, send me a private message over there, and I will play it on the show. You could also email me, if you want, I don't think I've said that before, but you could email me if you feel like it, or just send me a direct message on Discord. Uh, my email is Ben, it's keep at gmail. Now I'm going to have to start checking my email. You can email me if you like. I'm sure I'll get it. <laughs> I occasionally get emails. What else? I think that's basically it. 
Oh, I also have Patreon. If you'd like to support me on the Patreon, that would be wonderful. And I'll talk to you soon.